boundaries are an act of self-respect. So creating these boundaries is about nourishment. It's about stepping into a space where you take responsibility for your own well-being and learning to be okay that what we need for our own well-being may not be the same as what somebody else's needs might be. And that's okay. Welcome to Messy and Magnificent, the place driven women come to elevate their career, health, and relationships. In here, we increase your productivity by replacing always being busy with the space to breathe. Hear your own wisdom and be part of a sisterhood that has your back. My name is Carly Fain, and together we're going to make sure that you have a doable plan and the roots to rise. Well, welcome back to the Messy and Magnificent Podcast. It is your gal, Carly. And hey, did you catch it? Last week, we celebrated our 100th episode of the podcast. So if you have been with me here for all 100 episodes or you're brand new, just know that I'm holding you in my heart over here. And I really appreciate the ways that you're showing up thoughtfully to explore what we call the big three around here. That's a thriving career and great health and relationships that love us back or any combination thereof. So you might have heard last week, we talked about how this month, my intention is to celebrate this milestone by wrapping the most important professional and frankly, personal resource that I have up with a bow and sharing it with you. And that is is community. And when I say community, I don't mean just any old mix of people here. I'm talking about the types of community members that will offer you the constructive support to see you at your best. So tell me if any of this is relatable because it come up recently in conversation, but that's not even fully accurate. It came up recently and it's been coming up for years. Both things are true as I work with high achieving women is that there's this strange default that happens to people-pleasing for so many women, right? Or maybe just altering the way you ask for things or not asking for what you need at all because you're concerned that it won't go over well or you feel like if you don't phrase it just right, the other person either might not hear it or they might gaslight it or ignore it altogether. Well, if that's relatable, this is the episode for you. Or if you've ever experienced either of these ends of the spectrum, one end being being rewarded for being generous and helpful and kind, but also being exhausted behind the scenes, or the other end of the spectrum, which is if you felt like you have to be independent or else. In other words, that you have to just figure out most things on your own, and that is really hard to do also. If either of these are speaking to you, turn up the volume, because with this being episode 101, we're going to talk about some community 101, meaning where it all starts with our families and the community and boundary dynamics we start to develop super early. And when I say our earliest community, I'm talking about two things. So that's the culture of your immediate caregivers or family circle But it's also the slightly wider culture you live in, maybe based on geography or religion or the country you're in or the political system that you're in. Because there's this one theme 
that keeps coming up in our Boundary Academy community. And it's this notion that different cultures have different expectations about how we should show up in the world and what our role as a woman should be. And as we talk about the different roles of women within our respective cultures, I want to talk specifically because today happens to be Indigenous Peoples Day in the United States. So this is a day that honors the fact that we are a colonized country that has taken land from different indigenous communities that were here for centuries before white folks came along. And this is a great opportunity to head on over. I'll put a link to a website that I really love, nativeland.ca. We'll put it right here in the show notes. And you can type in where you live and learn a little bit more about the indigenous communities that might have been there long before you were, if you're not of that descent. And how you can learn and listen to their stories and become an ally for the many communities of people, starting specifically perhaps where you live, whose voices have been silenced for far too long. And as we look at some specific countries, one woman in Thailand explained how respecting the requests of elders is required in her family. So if her relatives stop by unannounced, even while she's been working from home during the pandemic, she is expected to stop what she's doing, to host them, to cook them a meal for a few hours. And this is really tricky because she wants to create boundaries. She's got to still do her work, but she's never seen a woman in her family see anything close to, hey, look, I love you, but I can't host you between nine and five when I need to be working. Or another woman shared how her Hispanic family of origin, it's really considered selfish, which is a particularly bad characteristic in her family, if a woman prioritizes herself at all, (laughs) not just over the requests of her husband or of her family, but if she doesn't have a meal on the table, if she doesn't do whatever's required by other people first, then she's considered not a good family member. And I could go on and on with more stories from women in our community here from Sri Lanka and Germany and Romania, Switzerland, Australia, all across the U.S., or based on, you know, the different religions that we've got here or skin colors or romantic orientations. We find so much common ground when we gather here at Messy and Magnificent or in the Boundary Academy. And each culture has its own nuances or overt styles. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to being in community. We must acknowledge where we find ourselves currently and where we originated if we want to map out how to get to the next place. So, I reached out to a woman I admire and respect deeply, Dr. Senem Aaron, and you're about to hear our rich conversation about the intersection of culture, community, and boundaries. Now, Dr. Aaron is a speaker. She is a researcher and a psychologist with over 17 years of experience. She is particularly passionate about supporting and empowering driven women to exceed in their entrepreneurial goals without sacrificing their health or well-being or happiness. (laughs) You can see why we invited her here. Now, Dr. Aaron is also a co-founder and a board member of the Center for Muslim Well-Being in Australia and an adjunct professor at Idbin Haldun University in Turkey, where she teaches positive psychology and well-being. And I found her through her TEDx talk that she gave in the Docklands in 2019, a beautiful conversation about boundaries for well-being. I'm going to put a link to that right here in the show notes, as I've also put a link to Dr. Senem's Instagram account. 
It's a beautiful spot to connect with her. She posts the sweetest, most inspiring, authentic reminders to make boundaries doable. And I really appreciate her. So before we jump into this interview, I want to pause briefly for one of my favorite parts of the show and give a community shout out. So at one point in this interview, you're going to hear how I shared a part of a story that one of my clients shared with me. And you'll know we've arrived at that moment when you hear me talking about the snap pee. (laughs) That'll all make sense in a little bit. This is one of the most beautiful and memorable examples of how much we are each holding beneath the surface of our traditional conversation and what it can mean to be embraced in a family or a community of our choice that can hold the fullness of who you are right now along with you. So with her permission, I am dedicating this episode to this client, colleague, and extraordinary community builder, Meredith Brisson. Now, Meredith is a sports psychologist that focuses on mindset coaching for courage-seeking equestrians. Isn't that the coolest job? (laughs) Meredith is all about grit and grace. And even though I don't horseback ride anymore, I've got to tell you, if you ever have an opportunity to connect with Meredith, do so. She is a powerful coach and her insights apply both in the saddle and out. A link to her website is right here too. Meredith, thank you for sharing this story with us. May we all keep an eye out for what's happening with our individual snap piece. All right, Dr. Sanem, Aaron, welcome to the show. I think it's so important to remember that we're enough. When I think about my childhood, I came from a family where we were taught that um, you needed to earn love. And so my identity became one where I was very much focused on achievement and success and the next award. And there was never an end to it. I never got to the point where I was like, yeah, yeah, now I feel like I'm enough. You know, I went all the way to the PhD and I was like, no, I still don't feel enough. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, remembering that we're enough no matter what, and we don't have to earn it. It just is. Oh, thank you for bringing that thread into the conversation. That is, I think, a timely reminder for all of us. I don't think I could hear that enough times. I'm really glad that you're here with us and that that is recorded because I need to hear that. (laughs) The recovering perfectionist in me needs that, needs that reminder, Sanam. Thank you for that. It's such an ingrained part of who we are. And it's something that we need to be reminded of to keep coming back to. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, you know, remembering and the way we started as as children, there was this thread of topic that you brought up in your TED Talk about being born into boundaries as children. And I had never thought about it like that before. This idea that boundaries were set for us, and then at some part point, we begin to set our own, and then we quickly learn that maybe it's not okay to set boundaries. Could you share a little bit about that? I found that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think of the first boundary that we're coming into is the the boundary of our mother's, you know, womb. It's nice and protected. We have everything that we need. And then when we come earthside, we come into the hopefully the loving arms of uh, our caregivers. And so when we think about our childhood, we have core emotional needs uh, that we are entirely dependent on our caregivers, our parents to meet. 
And, you know, the way that it works is when a need emerges, um, it's satisfied and then it recedes into the background to give way to new needs. And so when we think about when we first come into the world, our core fundamental emotional need is for a safe attachment to at least one parent, um, ideally both. We want to know that as a little baby that when we uh, cry out to, to draw attention to our needs, the only thing we're really interested in is, is there an adult that's going to be responsive in taking care of us and what we need and are they going to be consistent? Our life depends on it. So the safest attachment, this sense of security and uh, certainty that we get as we develop those cognitive abilities then begins to expand to include things like feeling connected and loved and validated and accepted and understood. And then something happens between those ages of maybe 18 months to two years where that need for independence and autonomy begins to emerge. We, we sort of all know what happens, right? The terrible twos hit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you see toddlers wanting to do things for themselves. You hear stuff like, me do it. And they will try and grab things and feed themselves and push back when you try and, you know, select their clothes for them. They, they really want to explore where the, where the boundaries are. And they also find their no. So that's how we first start setting boundaries through beginning to take those steps towards building our autonomy and letting other people know exactly what we want and exactly what we don't want. So ideally, if we have parents who are attuned to our needs, they're going to be supportive and encouraging of those age-appropriate development of independence and autonomy. But sometimes when, when parents are highly anxious or they're just not connected to what a child needs, they're going to begin to perhaps unconsciously undermine a child's need for independence because usually of their unresolved fears. So what they might do is try and prevent appropriate movement towards autonomy in order to protect the child. You might hear you know, sometimes parents screaming out to their kids not to do something if as a little, you know, two, three-year-old, you're hearing that parent scream, you don't really understand what's going on. And so there's a rupture that's happening. And if that rupture isn't repaired, if that parent isn't coming along and going, it's okay, I'm not upset with you. I just, mommy wants you to be safe. Let's go play over here. If that repair isn't happening, then we begin to internalise that as being something wrong with, with us and something being wrong with our needs. Oh, my eyes just got really big. <laughs> For those listening, you can't see. But when you said that, Sanam, I never thought about, I've never thought about it in that context of there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with my needs. And how early that messaging can begin, even from the most loving of people, right? In the best case scenario, it's still this, the way we can, as a young person, who doesn't see maybe the full picture yet, can so quickly go to, it's not okay for me to want this thing or to need this thing or to ask for this thing or to enjoy this thing. That makes me a little bit teary thinking that, you know, that's happening at such a young age. Sometimes we don't even have the words to be able to understand that that's the stories or connections we're creating as a result of those early experiences. Right. So, yeah, our parents end up pruning away bits of us that are not acceptable. 
that they feel sometimes they don't have the capacity to deal with, whether it be going, don't cry to a child versus coming in and soothing them, going, it's okay, you can cry, tell me what's going on. Okay, mummy's here, daddy's here, and, and soothing them. We sort of sometimes struggle to, to self-regulate and therefore that ends up impacting the way that we engage with, with our kids. But obviously we need limits as children. But if our parents are coming to the limit setting from a place that's quite rigid and authoritarian, where they feel like they know best, what they miss out is on that opportunity to attune with what we really need. And so when children resist, because children know what they need, they respond back to their parents. Sometimes what ends up happening is in an effort to control the dynamics, parents will, will withdraw love or they might unconsciously use shame or guilt or sometimes power in order to avoid that humiliation and abandonment, we as children start developing this superficial niceness and we start communicating those yeses even when we don't want to. So the training for self-sacrifice and people-pleasing starts quite young. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, as you say, you know, it makes you teary and it makes you sad and, and me as well. What I'm also feeling is a sense of commonality here. So many of us share common ground on this. We are connected in this way. This is a language that, while it might not be fully functional, is relatable, right? It opens my heart in terms of compassion for self and for, for others, you know, that probably most of us are brushing up against some version of learned behavior around altering the, what we ask for and what we say or the way we think we need to be in the world in order to feel loved or safe or or both. And so you're reminding me of how deep, you know, and early this mapping out of the way boundaries works. And also there's a sense of like letting ourselves off the hook in terms of like, this is old stuff. This isn't just about summoning the courage to use your voice. It's not just about being brave enough. Or it's like that we're really brushing up against some big things here, unconsciously even, that are influencing this. So, like, let's be kind. Where can we be soft with ourselves in the practice of, of boundaries? Because it's not just about, you know, telling the person who barged in your office that you're busy at the moment. It's also maybe about the time you were yelled at on the playground. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Our relationship with boundaries is deep. It goes all the way back to our childhood. And if you survived your childhood without some sort of blockage with your boundaries, do you know anybody? Yeah, like I'd love that? to meet you. If you're listening and you survived without any boundary issues, if you could get in touch, we would love to have you on the show, right? I'd love to meet the person who has no boundary challenges. That would be great. But you know, you remind me of I was talking with a client recently, a, a wonderful woman and she shared the story I'm never going to forget about being in the garden with her daughter this summer. Her daughter's six years old, and they were picking snap peas, and there was one that was ripe and ready. And her daughter picked the snap pea, and it was time to go into the house to cook dinner. And she started asking a lot of questions. She said, well, if I don't pick the snap pea, what'll happen? And the mom said, well, if you don't pick the snap pea, it'll eventually it'll wither, and it'll die on the vine, and it'll go back into the earth. And she said, okay, but if I do pick the snap pea, what happens? Well, then you can hold it or you can eat it, you know, and then and then it'll go into your body. And 
She looked at it and she hems and haws. She picks a snappy and then she's dragging her feet as it's time to go back into the house. And she starts to get teary and a little tantrumy. And in that moment, the mother who's been working on her boundaries, she said, you know, what's going on? Like, what's happening? You know, what's, what's going on here? And she asked her question about it. And her daughter said, no matter what I do, the snappy's going to go away and it's never going to come back. And here is this six-year-old having an existential crisis, learning for the first time the concept of impermanence and perhaps of helplessness, that regardless of whether we pick it or we don't pick it, this thing is going to change. And she held her in the garden. She said for 45 minutes, she cried in her lap. And this was not about the snap pee, right? Like that was the message. Like she could have grabbed her by the arm and said, look, we need to get in. We got to cook dinner. It was a night when it happened to be no rush and no timeline. So she could have this, right? But like, just like, I remember thinking, gosh, what would I have done if somebody said that to me as a child, that we could understand for each other? This isn't about the snap pee. <laughs> I mean, you've also sort of touched on a really important point there, Carly, in that sometimes we are in a rush and sometimes we may not have the space to do it all of the time, you know, to place and be attuned all of the time. It's, it's what it means to be human. We sleep up. The important thing to to know that we always have the option to repair, to go back and and sort of go, honey, tell me what's going on. What what was happening with the snap pee outside? When things become repetitive and we repeatedly don't get those emotional needs met, that's when we start creating stories in order to survive that childhood environment. And especially if there's no repair, if nobody is coming into our world as a child to comfort us, to reassure us, protect us from the distress that may have been caused by having a sad moment about the snow peak, for example. That's such an important awareness. I love the reminder that we can go back and repair that and and the real life the real life circumstances sometimes you have to go cook dinner sometimes we can't have an existential crisis in the moment right it's like but that we can go back later and tend to what still needs tending and that makes me ask the question of myself and anybody else listening you know what needs tending to what needs tending to right now in the face of what's before us you know in this really interesting moment in time what have i been Ignoring, like, what's the snap pee that I haven't tended to, right? Like, what's the snap pee that I haven't, that I haven't tended to that maybe now I'm ready to at least consider, right? Like, where can there be some repair? And I'm curious for you as we talk about, you know, childhood, and we all grow up in different childhoods. We grow up with different types of caregivers. We grow up in different parts of the world, different cultures. And I'm, I'm so ex- curious for you you know, where have you seen the relationship between different family dynamics or different types of communities or different types of culture and their relationship to boundaries show up? I think it's important to make the distinction between our cultures within families and the global sense of culture that refers to, you know, that um, experience of customs and social behavior. Every single family has going to have its own microculture that develops within the family that may be passed from one generation to to another, you know, the way that we do things in our house. So, for example, I grew up in a a home where very much the culture was, as a child, you were seen and not heard. I'm sure that's one that a lot of us can relate to. 
So the approach to parenting was, the messaging was, behave, follow the rules, listen to the adults, don't question what you're being asked. (laughs) You can imagine the sort of problems that's going to create as an adult. Right. Don't rock the boat. Don't make a fuss. Keep your head down. Do a good job. Be thankful for what you have. Yeah. Authority is always right. Right. Oh, right. (laughs) Looking outside of ourselves for what's true. So we have cultural editors. I love the work of Dr. Mario Martinez, who talks about these cultural editors that we have. You know, our parents, our caregivers, our teachers, our mentors, coaches, sometimes our friends, colleagues that begin to, to, to shape the containers of what's acceptable. Then when we move beyond our family microculture and, and sort of start looking into the global sense of culture, I love the work of Gerard Hofstad. Have you ever heard no, of him No, tell me more. Tell me more. Oh, he's a Dutch social psychologist that sort of has pioneered research in cross-cultural communication and understanding. And so he's, he's developed these uh, dimensions for us to understand different cultures. And one of those dimensions is this idea that some cultures are collectivist mm-hmm. versus some cultures are, are very much individualist. That plays such a huge role to our, our community cultural experience of, of boundaries. So when you, when you have a look at some of the characteristics or traits of those collectivist cultures, countries such as China or Korea or Japan or Indonesia, and also probably my own family of origin, Turkey. Some of the things that we see in these collectivist cultures is the focus is on community. It's about the well-being of the whole. And you do what you need to do to protect the well-being of, of, of the whole. Um, so it's very much a suppression of individual needs if it's not in the best interests of, of the whole. And we sort of define ourselves in relation to others. The sort of things that are encouraged in these communities are group loyalty, where we're placing the rights of the family, the rights of the community before the rights of the individual. It's where we see stuff like self-sacrifice being celebrated yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's a compliment. Really oh, she's the hardest worker I know, or she's always there for me no matter what. Those are compliments, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They're celebrated. You're rewarded for being generous and, and dependable and, and how helpful you are to others. And then when you, when you flip it and you have a look at some of the more individualistic cultures, you know, like the United States, Australia, Germany, Ireland, where the focus is very much on the individual and independence is what is encouraged. So you, you will see in, in these sort of cultures where families are like, yep, yeah, as soon as they turn 18, bye. Right, right you're out. <laughs> yeah, you're out. Yeah. I can't wait for the kids to, to leave home so, you know, we can uh, finally focus on what we want to do. Right. So it's this idea that, you know, individuals are supposed to look after themselves um, and, if relevant, their um, nuclear, immediate, direct family, where there's very much a focus on individual rights and concerns and the, the development of um, personal identity. Depending on, on your micro family culture and your global um, cultural heritage, it's going to directly inform your relationship with boundaries. This episode is brought to you by the Boundary Academy. 
15 years of coaching thousands of women has taught me that it doesn't matter how good our plans, our intentions are, our network, or even our access to external resources. If we don't have the boundaries we need to honor what we care about, we will always struggle with a lack of time or energy or money or downright satisfaction. You see, women who have thriving, healthy careers and relationships know That boundaries aren't just something nice you get to later. They're something you practice gently now so that you have the later that you want. So you can get free access to the recording of the Boundaries Brunch we did right before the Boundary Academy opened. There's a link to it in the show notes wherever you're listening or head on over to carlyfane.com. And in this 45-minute class, you're going to learn the three mindsets that women with healthy boundaries already know and live into. Plus... Lots of rich, candid conversation with thought leaders in the field of boundaries and women who are just getting started. There's nothing for sale in there. (laughs) Just rich content you're not going to get anywhere else. Because that hunch you're meant to be doing something meaningful and enjoyable with your life and career, it's right. I hope you'll join me and women from around the world that are making having boundaries oh so doable. Oh my gosh. You know, as you describe this question I keep hearing is in my head is whose beliefs are these? When we're looking at our boundaries, like whose beliefs are these? And what am I, are there any beliefs I'm carrying around boundaries that maybe they're not actually mine or they're just not applicable here, even if they served me for a time or if they served others for a time, but in the face of what's before me, what belief actually makes sense here? And I, and I'm, I'm a very like, visual learner and thinker. And I'm thinking, you know, the power when we're in the Boundary Academy, we do an exercise where we have people write down any belief we can think of around boundaries. Beliefs like, I'm not good at boundaries, or my sister's good at boundaries, or it's okay for to do boundaries here, but not there, or whatever it is. And then we kind of look like, whose is that? Whose thought is that? And do I want to keep that or modify it or let it go altogether, right? Like, and as you describe this as microcosm and and macrocosm, I see like the layered, the layeredness here and how unique each of our experiences will be then based on what the individual match was of our family's culture and then our communities, our broader communities culture. As you're talking, uh, Carly, I I remembered an example uh, when you said whose beliefs are these. I remember growing up as a kid being um, afraid of of cats and keeping a distance and it wasn't until I hit adulthood that I was like hang on a minute why am I even scared of cats <laughs> I, I realized that it was my mother who who's in um stifling my autonomy said to me one day don't touch cats you'll swallow their hairs and then you'll die you don't want that to happen <laughs> And so like, there it is. There's a little belief going in your backpack that's been hanging out there all this time. Thank you for bringing some humor into this, right? Of like, oh, it's just the human brain is fascinating. What we can pick up and adopt is our own. And I'm like, actually, I'm not afraid of cats at all. (laughs) (laughs) What am I actually not afraid of? That would be a fun inquiry to go on. What am I actually not afraid of? We don't filter as children. We just accept what gets uh, passed down to us as being fact. When your mother has a fear of X, 
that's what you accept to be, you know, the truth and model that, take that on because your brain doesn't have the capacity to go, actually, how true is that? So help me look at the flip side, if you would. I'm curious, how have you seen boundaries or where if have you seen boundaries be helpful in creating community or be helpful in forming connection? Because I think so often it's easy to look at boundaries as, we talk about this a lot here on the show, a wall, as an armoring up, as a way of pushing other people or circumstances away from us. And that's not necessarily the most effective or true you know, representation of all boundaries. I think boundaries can really be a bridge, right? That we can connect back to our values and those we care about. And so I'm just curious, in, in your experience with your work, where you live, all of that, have you seen boundaries cultivate community? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. I think if we look at boundaries as simply being a means of communicating our needs to others, it's going to draw us in. Okay, can you say that again? Because that was the most clear, <laughs> beautiful definition of boundaries. So seeing boundaries as... A mean, means of communicating our needs. It's going to draw people in rather than a, this is what I don't want. It's, hey, I've got some needs that I want to share with you. And I would love if, you know, if you have the capacity to, to hold space for that. So what could that look like? If anyone's listening and going, ooh, that's interesting. Like, what could that conversation look like? What's an example of expressing a need in that way? Of, hey, here's a need I've got. Do you have capacity to meet me here? Okay, so if I was to think of a um, recent example, it's as simple as when you're having an off day or there's something that you want to debrief about or reflect on, reaching out to a friend and say, hey, Something's been occupying my mind. I'd love if you can just listen to me. Just need somebody to talk this over with and, and tell me what you think. Going to somebody for, for advice and, and guidance and support and sharing of wisdom is an example of, of how we can use this idea of using boundaries to communicate our, our needs to, to pull people in. That is so powerful to think about it that way, that boundaries aren't always about saying no, that boundaries might be about drawing nourishment around ourselves, wrapping ourselves in a blanket. And when you think of, we talk about, you know, parenting and childhood earlier, this to me sounds like the parenting of ourselves in that moment of, I've got this need, you know, I need to talk through this with somebody. I'm drawing a boundary of support around myself. Hey, are you the person I can talk to about this? Absolutely. When we see boundaries as a way of communicating our needs, it's much easier to be vulnerable because it helps us to, to connect with our physical self and our emotional self to identify what it is that we need to be able to connect with our truth. It's an act of love, you know, not withholding parts of yourself from the people that you care about is an act of love. For them, for you, right? For all yeah. of us, I see that as, gosh, boundaries as an act of love. Boundaries yeah. as an act of love. That in of itself is a powerful, powerful phrase. And I'm curious because, and if I know you talk about your childhood. I remember your story from the TEDx talk, which we'll put a link to here. You've got to go listen uh -huh. to this. Your one eyebrow grandma. Was it a grandma? Uh -huh. right? She gave you the one eyebrow. And that was enough communication to know, oh, pay attention. She's drawn a boundary, right? Like, she raised an eyebrow, pay attention. 
we get women who come into the community who say, okay, I love all this. I, I want to practice boundaries. But I come from a culture where that scene is selfish. So like, this is hard for me, right? I come from, you know, a woman recently said, you know, I come from a Hispanic culture. And in my family, we, you listen to your elders. And if your elders say, we're coming over and we need you to cook for us, it doesn't matter that you need to work during those hours. Like the expectation is you stop what you're doing and you cook the meal or, or you agree. You say, yes, you marry the person, <laughs> you know, they want you to go to the school they want you to go to. The, and so this idea of boundaries is fascinating, but there's this deep sense of, in my culture, that was not okay. What might you offer in terms of like, what bridges that gap? Like what's the first gentle step towards, okay, I want this boundary. Those around me may not understand it. How do I even begin? I'm so glad you asked that question, Carly. (laughs) This part of boundaries is probably one of my favorite parts of boundaries, and that is the thing that's probably made the biggest difference to my own journey of healing, my lack of boundaries, was embracing this idea that boundaries are an act of self-respect. So creating these boundaries is about nourishment. It's about stepping into a space where you take responsibility for your own well-being and learning to be okay that what we need for our own well-being may not be the same as what somebody else's needs might be. And that's okay. You know, coming from, from cultures where we were edited as children, or had to alter ourselves to make other people happy, then, yeah, boundaries becomes this really overwhelming, scary experience. You freeze in the face of, of needing to draw on. Because after all, you know, for most of us, boundaries has come with the risk of being rejected or invalidated or hurt or often by the people that, you know, care about the most, that we care about the most, that care about us the most. And so when we embrace this idea that boundaries is an act of self-respect, it makes it easier. As you say that, I'm thinking self-respect is not an inverse ratio in terms of respecting others. Like as we respect ourselves more, it doesn't mean we respect anybody else less. There's not a lack of respect in the world, in other words, meaning there's enough available, right? Like when we respect ourselves, it has no bearing on the level of respect we might have for somebody else. doesn't mean we, we are disrespecting them to say, this is what I need, or I want to go to university, or I don't want to go to university, or whatever, I want to have children, I don't want to have children, whatever the conversation is, that it's not an act of disrespect, it's an act of self-respect. When you frame it that way, my mind starts firing, and it reminds me of, of you talking about this idea of... <laughs> When we are first creating boundaries, especially with people who are close to us, we need to give them an opportunity to acclimate because we're effectively changing the rules of engagement. We are saying what used to fly no longer flies here or this other thing needs to happen. And I'm, I'm just like, if we're practical and pragmatic about this, it's one thing to say I need to be patient. It's another thing to be in the moment thinking, oh my gosh. Like, this person doesn't get it. Like, what do I do here, right? What are your thoughts? What does that actually look like? How do do we cultivate the patience to let somebody have whatever response they want to have to our boundary without necessarily backtracking on what we just said? I always say to my clients, 
when we begin to set boundaries with people that we've never set boundaries with, things are going to get worse before they get better. There's the honesty. There's the honesty. (laughs) And that's where lovingly holding space to allow others to catch up with us is really important. The first thing I sort of look at is understanding whether the boundary that we're setting is, is, is a visible one, is one that we've communicated previously or not. Often we feel violated with boundaries that we haven't even communicated to others. Isn't that the truth? I've never asked my roommate in college to turn down the music or to stop playing or, you know, or stop inviting her boyfriend over after 10 p.m. I just sat in my bed with my earplugs in and resented her. Like, that's what I did. <laughs> I was sat in there thinking, how could you be doing this right now? This is so rude of you. How do you not see that I'm trying to sleep? But I didn't, I didn't summon the courage or just have the clarity or you, right? A person like you who could say, oh, you need to say it out loud. They're not mind readers. (laughs) Yeah. If we're not responding to to what's happening as it's happening and providing that immediate feedback, then it's really unfair that somebody is being held accountable for that, right? All of the imaginary contracts I've had in my head that nobody else has signed, right? The contract is you're going to talk to me this way or you're going to be available at this time or you're not going to interrupt me at that time. We never sat down and drafted that document together. And here I am holding them to something they never agreed to. Yeah. Yeah. When you get into the trenches and you're having those conversations and the invisible starts becoming more visible and known to everybody concerned, most people are receptive to our feedback and needs and will do their best to hold space. Yes. Most people are going to be, you know, reciprocating. They might need some reminders from time to time, but we all do. On the other hand, when we try and set boundaries in really dysfunctional families, the sort of things that we're going to come across is blame, shame, resistance, anger, and it's going to be extra tough. Like boundaries are tough at best, but trying to do that with family members that might you know, have strong traits of entitlement or disregard or just don't have the capacity to be able to comprehend that somebody else has a need that doesn't relate to them. It's really the difference of, you remind me of um, when Nancy Levin talks about boundaries, she sometimes says, am I dealing with a reasonable or unreasonable person, right? And and we can be fully reasonable in 90% of the scenarios and be unreasonable in 10%. It's not as black and white of fully reasonable, fully unreasonable, but it's the, who am I actually in communication with? What is their capacity here? So what are my expectations really? And as you say this, I keep going back to your earlier point in my mind of, okay, if we're setting boundaries with somebody where they escalate the situation or they really challenge it. That's the opportunity to set the earlier boundaries you mentioned, which is to love ourselves and say, okay, so who can I reach out to for support and talk this through right now? My Uncle Harry's not going to get it when I set this boundary. So can I call so-and-so after I speak with him or before I speak with him so that I'm wrapped in support as I'm doing this thing that's challenging? How can I use boundaries both ways not just as effort, but also as receiving. Absolutely. Boundaries help us to, to connect with where our support systems are. There it is. That web. There it is. 
Oh my gosh, Senem, I want to talk to you for eight more days. I wish <laughs> I wish we were in the same time zone. But before you go, would would you be willing to do the two way Q and A with us here? Absolutely. Yay! Let's have some fun. So here's my first question: If you came with a warning label, what might it say? It's going to say, "Beware." goes deep. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I love that. I'll bring a paddle to your deep waters anytime. I'm there for it. I love understanding why people do what they do, where it's originating from, why it's there. I just love going deep. Mm. Okay. So based on our conversation today, What's one question you'd love to ask a woman listening right now? What do you want to know about her? If she embraced boundaries as being an act of self-respect, what would she be doing differently? I want to know the answer to that question. We're going to put a link to Senem's Instagram right here in the show notes so that you can keep this conversation going with us. We would love to hear from you and talk about that. Ooh, what might you do differently if we viewed boundaries as an act of self-respect? All right, here's my last one. And it's very fitting, actually, for our subject about people not always agreeing with, the, with what we're thinking or needing. But even if other people disagree, what's one thing that you know to be true? I would probably say that no matter what happens, people will have good intentions, but sometimes might disappoint. Sometimes, you know, like seasons, they might leave And sometimes those departures might be painful, whether they intentionally or unintentionally end up abandoning us. We can't control that. So what I want to say is what we can control is making sure that we don't end up abandoning ourselves. So I have a little mantra that goes, no matter what happens, I can always choose me. May we never abandon ourselves or when we do come back home quickly, right? Like this is the invitation (laughs) to go, oops, I forgot about that. I forgot about myself. Let me get back home. Let me get back home. Thank you so much for being here, Zanam. We really appreciate you. More of this, please. My pleasure. Thank you for having me as a guest, Carly. It was so much fun. Carly. Dr. Senum, you covered so much in this conversation. So I want to know, as you're listening here, what part of this conversation stands out to you? Is there a phrase, a concept, or maybe there's an idea you just want to tuck into your back pocket and keep it with you from here on out? Take that on over to iTunes, leave a review about this podcast and tell me what's landing or Email a quick message or voice memo over to Anitza, that's A-N-I-T-Z-A, at everybodythrive.com. And I would love to see us continue this conversation. Let it begin to unfold. Plus, then I can give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. And I'll say it again, Dr. Senem's Instagram handle is right here in the show notes, wherever you're listening. I'm sure she would love to be in conversation with you, too. Remember, you thrive through nourishment, not punishment. Keep taking care of what you value as you explore the types of community connections that make sense for where you are right now. And I'll see you again next week with a brand new episode. 
Thank you for listening to the Messy and Magnificent podcast and being part of this dynamic, life-giving community of women. I consider each episode part of a lifelong conversation of you and me hanging out, sipping tea together, making sure that all women become richer, more nourished, and able to keep on rising. So I'll see you on the next episode next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to head over to carlyfane.com forward slash podcast to get the full show notes. And I've also got some extra special free resources for driven women over there that you won't find anywhere else. 